Genesis 6, 11 to 22. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath, breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, Take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that, the, that God commanded him. Good to see you here. Is this working at all? No. Nothing is working today. That works. This one, no. That's not working. Oh, turn it on. <laughs> Hello? Hey. Hey. Let's start again. Good to see you here at the EU's public meeting. Um, if you were here over the last couple of weeks, you'll know that before we got to the talk, um, we were talking about an event that the EU is planning to run in second semester called Festival, the Is Jesus Festival, where we're hoping, the EU's hoping, to present the good news about Jesus Christ to thousands and thousands of people here on the Sydney Uni campus by running all sorts of opportunities so people might hear of Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. Is this familiar to you? You have heard something about this, yes, happening in second semester. Excellent, good. In preparation for this festival, the EU team that's been organising it have been asking the question, this question, what are the blockages that people have that prevents them from accepting the Christian message? They hear the Christian message about Jesus, sounds good, but they say it feels like, it sounds good, but there's all this this thing, this other thing that stops me accepting the message about Jesus you've just shared with me. What sort of blockages do people have? Now, two days ago at the public meeting where I raised this question, I actually got people to talk with, you know, the person next to them came up with some suggestions. We surveyed the room and people said different things like, 
oh, well, it sounds good what you're saying about Jesus, but can I really trust what the Bible says? Sounds good about Jesus, but what about science? If you believe in science, isn't that really um, completely opposed to having faith? Other people saying, oh, no, but sounds good about Jesus, but is it really relevant to my life? Or other people saying, sounds good about Jesus, but I don't want to change my life. All sorts of blockages people have. And one of the things we're going to do during the festival is explore some of those blockages with people so that hopefully they might be able to accept the message about Jesus. I want to raise with you a particular blockage that I think people have. This particular blockage, though, tends to surface as people have actually investigated the message about Jesus a bit more deeply. They've actually started to really hear it and think about it and process it and then this blockage arises. What is this particular blockage? It's the question that is this God that you're telling me about in the Lord Jesus Christ, is this God really morally right in all he does? Given what you've told me about who Jesus is and what he's done, is God really morally right? Is he really morally right to judge us in the way that you're telling us he does judge us in Jesus? And what's more, as they explore that question and go deeper into it and you'd start to explain about God's judgment in Jesus, they then come back with another question. Well, given what you're saying, is he really morally right in not judging me immediately? And as you explain that a bit further, another question comes up. Is he really morally right in saving us at all from judgment? This question about, is God really just? Is he really fair? Is he really morally good in what he does? Now, the reason I'm raising this particular set of questions is because the little section from the book of Genesis that we just had read out, that we're exploring today, the story about Noah and the ark, this story raises these questions. So we need to actually address them. That's why I raise it for you. So... We've got a lot to sort of get through, so I'm going to power on and talk fast, and that clock is five minutes slow. I am aware of this, so I will make sure we get out of here on time. But first of all, because this year, Genesis, the EU has said, Genesis is going to be our book of the year. We're going to look at Genesis over three different sort of chunks in the year. This is the beginning of our second chunk. We're going to look at Genesis through to the end of semester. We'll come back to it later in second semester. I just want to bring you back up to speed. First of all, Getting our bearings right back in the book of Genesis. How does Genesis, this first book in the Christian Bible, actually fit together? You may well know, if you know, if you've been around Christian things for a while, that the chapter numbers and the verse numbers in your Bible are not original. They were added many, many, many centuries later after the book of Genesis was written. The person who wrote Genesis or who drew it together, the sort of final editor, if you like, the person who's pulled it together for us, did not use chapters and verses. They structured the work differently. They structured it, I'm going to suggest to you, in 12 panels or sections. You can see this because there's a repeated sort of heading to most of the sections. The very first section stands out as a bit different, Genesis chapter 1 through to chapter 2, verse 3, which is about God creating everything, all things, the heavens and the earth, over seven days. If you want to explore that more, you can go back and listen to the public meeting from the very beginning of this year where we talked a bit about that. That's the first panel. Then after that, there's 11 more sections, 11 panels, all of which are introduced with this phrase, 
these are this is the account of or the generations of dot 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 fill in the blank so the first time we meet it in chapter 2 verse 4 this is the account of the heavens and the earth then you meet it again chapter 5 verse 1 this is the account of adam then chapter 6 verse 9 this is the account of no and so on there's 11 of these sections throughout the rest of the book this is how the book is structured why am i bothering to tell you this it's because if you just do your own reading of the book of Genesis just based around the chapter numbers, you're going to miss often how the story is meant to fit together. It fits together in this way. So if you just, I'm just trying to help you be a better reader of God's word, better reader of the book of Genesis, so you know how the sections fit together when you dip in and read parts of it. I'm hoping that's going to be helpful for you. The section we're going to look at today is this bit, the account of Noah. So, my super quick summary of the panels leading up to that is like this. And my emojis didn't come out on the PowerPoint, unfortunately. <laughs> my, my summary of panel one is double thumbs up, smiley face, party, and live long and prosper. That was my <laughs> suggestion for the panel number one. In the beginning, God creates all things and the conclusion, in English, at the very end is and it was very good, everything God created. Everything is fantastic in, gen in that first panel. The second panel, though, tells us that what happens after that is the spreading, terrible, corrupting effects of sin. Humanity's refusal to respect God by respecting his word to us. And therefore, because we don't respect God and don't respect his word to us, we abandon God's ways. The effect of that, as that's described in this second panel from chapter 2 through to the end of chapter 4, is things go from good, initially with Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden, to bad. They actually reject God's word, eat from the tree that they shouldn't eat from, and they're actually ex excluded from the garden and now condemned to die. That's bad, but then it gets worse. Their son, Cain, murders his sibling. I mean, you might fight with your brother, right? Or your sister. He kills his brother. And then that's bad. If you then follow right through the panel, as you go down the story, it gets worse and worse and worse and ends up with Lamech, who's a terrible man, at the end of that line of descendants. It's the story of the spreading, terrible, corrupting effect of sin. But then, in panel number three, we're introduced to a godly line of descendants from Adam, Adam has another son called Seth, a godly line of descendants who call on the name of the Lord, pray to God, and yet even though there is this godly line, sin still reigns. And you get this in this panel because you get a long genealogy and you're told, so-and-so lived a very, very long time and then he died. And then about his, his descendant, so-and-so lived for a very long time and then he died. And the refrain throughout the whole of this section is, and he died, and he died, and he died. And we know why people are dying, right? It's because they've been excluded from the garden, because of sin. This is the ongoing effect of sin, even amongst this godly line. And even though there's this godly line, you get to the end of this panel, and this sets us up for the Noah story. If you've got your Bible, helpful to open up to the end of this panel, chapter 6 of Genesis particularly verses 5 to 8, right at the end. Let me read it to you. Despite this godly line, 
We then read, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. It's a pretty sober reflection and pronouncement from God, isn't it? Seeing how the story has gone, he sees how extensive sin and wickedness has become. And he decides to wipe out all the life that he has created. But notice there, in this panel about the godly line, notice there in verse 8, but Noah, who's the last in this godly line that we've met so far, Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Well, that raises a bit of a question. The Lord's just announced he's going to destroy everyone, but Noah finds favour. What's going to happen to Noah? Is he going to get wiped out too? And that launches us then into the next panel, the next section which we're looking at today, the account of Noah, which starts here in chapter 6 verse 9, goes through to the end of chapter 9, so we don't have a lot of time. So I'm going to explain to you, I'm not going to read out the whole story to you, but let me tell you how this section is structured. The author has structured this account in a fairly particular way, like a sandwich. I showed this picture to my nine-year-old daughter. She's very astute. She said, is that a sandwich? I said, yes. She said, is that bacon in the sandwich? I said, yes. She said, is the bacon in the middle of the sandwich? I said, yes, it looks like it's in the middle of the sandwich. She said, the bacon is the best bit. That's right. You put the best bit of the you put the best bit of the sandwich in the middle. That's where it goes. In fact, let me tell you how you build the perfect sandwich. If you've ever wondered, you go bread top and bottom, right? Bread top and bottom. Then what you do is you add your condiment of choice. Let's say mustard. You add mustard to both bits of bread. To both bits of bread. <laughs> then. You add, say, lettuce, top and bottom. Then you add your meat of choice, say, if you're into meat. You know, let's say roast beef, top and bottom. And then to top it off, you put the best bit in, which is always bacon. <laughs> and, you put, and you have the perfect sandwich. Balance, top and bottom. That's how you build the perfect... Well, okay, maybe that's not the perfect sandwich. But off... it's. There's actually a, a literary structure called a chiasmus, which actually uses that sort of in and out structure where everything is balanced all the way through and the most important bit is there in the middle. That is how the author structures this account of Noah. It goes like this. So let me talk you through it. Starts off, we meet in chapter 6, 9 and 10, that Noah was a righteous man. We already just read that at the end of the previous panel, right? Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, we're told, is a righteous man. Then the next, the next layer down, chapter 6, verses 11 to 22. God sees, he sees 
the corruption that is in the world because of sin. God sees, we're told. He decides on a course of action, in this case, to wipe out humanity and then he says something to Noah. In this case, if you look at there, if you've got chapter 6, you can see that he announces his plan to Noah. His plan to Noah is not just to wipe out all living things. His plan is also to save Noah because Noah found favour in his eyes. He's going to save Noah, Noah's family and representatives from all the animals and the plants. Why is he going to do that? That's a really important point actually because you realise God isn't just going, ah, I'm sick of this creation business that I've gone into. Just chuck it all in the cupboard and forget about it. I'll go and do something else with my godness. That's not what he decides to do. He says, my intentions for my creation is good. It's been corrupted by sin. So I'm going to act on the sin and get rid of that and I'm going to perpetuate my creation through Noah and those that I save so that the good creation can continue. My good intentions for creation can eventually be fulfilled. So God sees, he decides, and then he says, next layer down. God then speaks to Noah, chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. He says, Noah, go into the ark with all the animals and the plants. Then, chapter 7, verses 6 to 24, the flood comes. The flood comes, uh, how, how long does it rain for? Do you remember from Sunday school when you were a kid? 40 days and 40 nights. How long is Noah in the ark for altogether though? A year and 10 days. Because it rains and then it takes a long, long time for the flood to um, recede. Anyway, so the flood comes and the flood is described as a massive act of decreation. Right, Fitting into the whole Genesis story, here God is undoing, it seems, all the things that he created. Have a look there in chapter 7, verse 21. Just think about how utterly destructive is what happens here. We read there, verse 21, Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out, men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Utter destruction. A massive act of decreation. I say that because do you remember how Genesis 1 started? The very beginning of when God creates the heavens and earth. Initially, the Spirit of God, the Ruach is the Hebrew word, the Ruach of God was hovering over the waters. What happens here? The waters come, it fills up, and what's left? It goes over the highest mountains and there's only water left. We're back to the beginning again. Only Noah is left and those with him in the ark. That then brings us to the very centre of the sandwich. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. The centre point of this story, even though judgment is a big feature of the story and was what has precipitated the story, 
no pun intended there, I realise. The centre point of the story is actually God remembering those he saves. That's the centre point of the story. Having got to the centre point, we then come back out. And it balances all the stuff we saw on the way in. First of all, the flood now recedes in chapter 8 from verse 1 through to verse 14. And it's described actually as a recreation. You remember how Genesis 1 started? The spirit, the ruach of God hovering over the waters. Have a look at chapter 8 verse 1, halfway through. And God sent a wind, that's the same word, ruach, a wind over the earth and the waters start to recede. As the water recedes, the dry land appears exactly as things happened in Genesis chapter 1. It's described, framed, as a recreative act of God. The flood recedes. Then God says to Noah, come out of the ark, balancing his instruction to go into the ark. He says, come out of the ark and the animals with you. Let the animals go forth and multiply, recreation, multiply across the face of the earth. This time, when Noah comes out, what he does, Noah then offers a thanksgiving sacrifice to God and God doesn't see, this time God smells. God smells the sacrifice. He makes a decision again and then he'll speak to Noah, balancing out what we saw back in chapter 6. He smells Noah's sacrifice and then he says, have a look at chapter 8, verse 21. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, so saying to himself, deciding for himself, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. He decides, and then having decided, he now speaks that to Noah. In chapter 9, there's two sort of speeches God gives to Noah. First of all, chapter 9 verses 1 through to 7. God blesses Noah and says, be fruitful and multiply. Exactly the same thing told to humanity back in chapter 1. Be fruitful and multiply. Um, and then he says in chapter, in verse 8 through to verse 17, he says, I now establish my covenant with you. He says, just as I've decided never to wipe everyone out by a flood again, he announces that to Noah and says, here's my sign of this promise, this covenant that I make with you, and it's the rainbow. Whenever you see the rainbow, that's the reminder that God has promised never to wipe out all living things through a flood again. How does it then end? Well, remember the whole account started with Noah as a righteous man. It ends with a funny story, funny meaning a bit unexpected and weird, uh, story in verses 18 to 28 of chapter 9 where you realise that sin still is having effect. Yes, Noah was saved because he found favour in the eyes of God, but he is not without fault. And this funny story in uh, verses 18 and 28 is that Noah plants a vineyard, having been saved out of the ark, plants a vineyard, he makes wine, he gets drunk and is lying drunk and naked in his tent. His, one of his sons, Ham, comes in, has a gawk at his dad, goes and tells his brother about over there, which is terribly dishonouring to his dad, right? It's shameful behaviour. His two older brothers then um, realise, no, this is bad, and so they sort of line up and put a rug between them. They walk backwards into the tent and lay the rug over their dad to sort of cover his nakedness. 
So they act honourably, but Ham doesn't. So Noah's maybe not so righteous, Ham is not so right. So that sort of ends the story. I guess what that tells you is sin is going to keep having its effect despite God's salvation. That's the story. That's the account. That's the big sandwich. What do you make of it? What do we take away from this story? Okay, well, I've got three things, three takeaways for this. I'm going to spend most time on the first one and then very briefly on uh, two and three. What's the take-home message? Well, first of all, I think that God judges human beings for our sin. That's got to be part of the take-home message from this particular story, doesn't it? God judges human beings for our sin. God saw their wickedness. Remember what he said in chapter 6 before we got into this particular story? He saw that every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. God sees. He then responds with a decision to judge, to wipe out that sin. And when he does so, it is utter destruction. And yeah, that's sobering. How do we, what are we meant to do with that part of the story? What are we meant to do about this? That God took such, what seems to us to be extreme action against human sin. I mean, do you think the humans who lived back then were worse than you? Every inclination of their heart was only evil all the time. I mean, they must be heaps worse than us, right? Where every now and then an inclination of our heart is sort of a bit questionable every now and then. Like, surely that's a more accurate picture of us. Actually, I don't think they or us are any different. I think deep down, if you could dissect our thoughts and the intentions of our hearts, actually we're probably just the same as them, aren't we? But we'll come back to that in a moment. What do we do with this story, though? How do we respond to it? Well, you might remember from early in the year, I kept saying to you, when we're reading parts of the Old Testament as Christians, We read it not flat, we read it like this at an angle because the whole of the Bible story comes to a climax in the person and work of Jesus. So we can't read any part of the Old Testament without reading it in the light of who Jesus is and what he has done. What happens when we do that? Well, when you read this story about the flood in the light of Jesus, certain things become apparent. It's made clear in the New Testament that the flood is just a shadow of the ultimate post-death judgment of all humanity. You can see this, um, and I'll show this in a moment, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 in particular. The flood is just a shadow of the ultimate post-death judgment for all of us. And so here's just a few verses out of the New Testament that reflect that. The writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.27, we are all destined to die once and after that, face judgment. Or 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. John 5, Jesus himself says that when he returns, some will rise to a resurrection of life and others will rise to a resurrection of condemnation. There is an ultimate post-death judgment of sin and the, the flood, as terrible and as utter as the destruction was, is just a shadow of the greater ultimate judgment to come. Now, at that point, 
at that point, once you actually say, wow, is that part of the Christian message? That's when you start to ask, is God really morally right? Is it even fair that God could judge us like that? Because I don't think I'm too bad, really. And I don't, you know, I don't think you're too bad. I often talk to graduates who leave the university and maybe they've been part of the EU and I don't know if they've lived a particularly sheltered sort of existence. It may be from this comment they often make, which is, oh, yeah, how's work going? Yeah, it's going really well. I mean, you know, I work with a whole bunch of people who don't know Jesus and they're lovely. They're lovely people. It's like that's news to them. It's like they've never met a nice, not, maybe they've never met a non-Christian before. Maybe they've got no friends. I, I don't know what it's about. But anyway, they are... They're sort of surprised that there's people out there who don't know and love Jesus, but guess what? They sort of do a good job at work. They're sort of responsible. They love their kids and they sort of care about wider social injustice. They sort of seem to be nice people. Surely we're not that bad. Is this really what we deserve, what God has in store? I think there's two issues with that. Part of the reason we feel this is because we look in the wrong direction and we look with distorted vision. We look in the wrong direction and we look with distorted vision. I'll explain what I mean. We look in the wrong direction because when it comes to feeling like how we sort of sit with God, we look side to side instead of up and down. We look side to side to each other. We go, well, I'm pretty good compared to that person over there. I'm certainly better than that person over there. So we look at it and we say, I'm pretty good, really. Rather than looking up at God himself. Do you know the story about that Jesus tells in Luke 18 about two people who go up to pray at the temple? There's the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, a religious guy, comes and he actually says to God, he says, Thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, like that sinner over there, that tax collector over there. Compares himself horizontally and goes, I'm pretty good. I'm doing all right, thanks, God. Whereas the tax collector comes up and he doesn't look sideways. In fact, he won't even look up because he knows who's looking at him, so he looks down and says, Have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. We often look side to side in comparison rather than upwards to God. Well, if you want an Old Testament example, we're not like Isaiah, the prophet, who had a vision of God and who, who sees God in his holy, holy, holiness and says, Woe is me, for I am a sinful man with, with unclean lips and I have seen the Lord. We're not like him. We're more like Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. These guys were priests in Leviticus chapter 10. And God had said, if you're going to be a priest of mine, then here's, how you, here's the things you should do as a priest. Nadab and Abihu, they decided they knew better than God. That actually, it was no big deal being a priest of God. They decided to freestyle it, make up their own sort of ceremony. And they did that in the presence of the Lord and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. We treat God's holiness so lightly. We look in the wrong direction. Maybe that's why we don't feel like we're actually that bad. But we also look with distorted vision. 
What I mean is this, we find it really difficult to accept that God has some sort of moral claim over our life. That somehow God actually has a right or an authority to expect certain things from us. We find that really hard just to accept. We sort of think, no, surely he should give me all the freedom that I want to do whatever I want. Now, I'm going to give you an analogy that maybe will help you feel this a little bit. It's got plenty of problems with it, but let's just go with it and see where it lands. I want you, uh, you know when you see a science fiction movie and sometimes at the beginning it said set in the near future. You know, just a few years hence. I love those movies. Um, I want you to imagine we are in the near future. Well, maybe not so near for you. You've become a grandparent. Okay? Congratulations. You're a grandparent and you have your you have five-year-old grandson or granddaughter or whatever and you've decided because, you know, you're generous now that you're a grandparent, um, you've decided to buy them, yes, the latest toy. The latest toy, given it's in the future, is pretty awesome, may I tell you. Let me tell you about it. It's called Mini Life. Mini Life. It's awesome. It comes, you've got these little moulds. They're little moulds of like little people. They're about that tall, right? Little, and you, you get the moulds and then you fill it up with this chemical stuff that comes. You fill it up with chemical stuff, put the mould together, put it, and then you connect it to a power thing that sort of zips it and then out, out pops these like little, little bitty people. And they fully run around and do stuff. They can sing and they can dance and they can sort of play cricket and they can do all this crazy stuff. They're like little people. They talk and it's awesome. Every kid wants one. You've been, you bought mini life. And there you are, Christmas Day, you're making mini life with, the, with your grandkid and you set it all up and you've got the doll's house there so they can play in the doll's house. right? There. But then the little mini life people, they, they, they start going a bit weird. <laughs> they start fully, fully actually destroying each other. They fully start pulling, like, pulling each other down and destroying one another. And then... They start destroying themselves. You go, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. You're moving them apart. Come on, come on, come on. Play nice, play nice, play nice. And they just keep going. They keep going. And then they start destroying your stuff. You go, hey, 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 no, no, no. Boundary there. No, 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 no. And one of them turns says, get stuffed! Gives you the finger. <laughs> and they all start doing it. Get stuff, who are you? And they're just going and they're smashing each other, smashing themselves, smashing your stuff. It's... Oh, you're just going to... You're just going to... Oh, yeah, it's all good. It's all good. It doesn't matter. How, how long are you going to put up with that? How long are you going to put up with that before finally you go, you know what? Let's shut this down. You get the point. We really struggle to accept that God, our creator, our loving, good creator, has a moral claim over our life. But he does. He does because he made us in his image. So, God judges human beings for our sin. I told you I was going to spend more time there. I'm going to be super fast on the next ones. But uh, just before we do... Uh, just a reminder, I guess, from 2 Peter chapter 3, I said before that this is where it's made clear in the New Testament that there is a coming judgment for us and the flood reminds us of it. Uh, Peter writes there, 
they will say, where is this coming, this coming day of judgment? Where is this coming he promised? But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, talking about the flood, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And then he reminds us, by that same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So yes, God will hold us accountable for our sin, but that's not the only message out of this story of Noah, is it? Secondly, it's interesting in the story of Noah, God deliberately delays the judgment we deserve. Did you get right at the end of the story, the Lord says in chapter 8, after Noah gives the sacrifice, he says, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. So the Lord knows the human heart is still inclined to evil and sin, but it said, but I won't wipe them out. Now that's sort of interesting. If, if destruction is what we deserve, why is God really moral in not, not handing it out? How can he morally just stand back and go, okay, I won't, ha- I won't do it, even though that's what they deserve? Well, the message in the New Testament, when you read this in the light of Jesus, from 2 Peter chapter 3 again, is yes, there is a day of judgment coming. That will happen when Jesus returns. So it's not that God is going to ignore what we deserve. There is a day of judgment coming and it's being held over to that day when Jesus returns. But what 2 Peter 3 makes clear is it hasn't happened yet because, we're told, he is being patient with us because God doesn't want anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. So yes, God is holding us accountable, but he doesn't want anyone to perish under his judgment. He wants everyone to be saved. So what that means is the only reason the Lord Jesus has not returned is because he wants you, your friends, to come to repentance and find salvation in Jesus. That's the only reason Jesus hasn't come back. And it's interesting, I think, there in chapter 9, we're told that the rainbow is a reminder, a sign of God's patience. So when you're out in Sydney and, um, you know, and it's raining and the rain stops, there's a beautiful rainbow, what's your thought when you see the rainbow? I know what it is. Your thought is, quick, where's my phone? Put it on Insta, like everybody else. <laughs> Hashtag rainbow, right? That's what, that's what we do when we see the rainbow. Have we forgotten Genesis chapter 9? God says, when you see the rainbow, this is what it's about. It's, it's because it's my, the sign of my promise to not bring a flood on the earth, which is precisely what everyone actually deserves. It's a sign of my patience. So when you see the rainbow, you need to stop and go, thank you, Lord, for your patience that Jesus has not come back yet. It's a sign of his patience for us. Uh, 2 Peter 3, he applies this to us. He says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. And finally, what's the take-home message number three? The centre of the sandwich. The bacon moment. God remembered Noah. He remembers and saves. 
But you might say, well, is God really morally right to save us from the judgment that we deserve? If, we really, if Noah was, himself was not a perfect guy, do we deserve this judgment? How can God excuse us from the judgment we deserve? Where's the justice in that? Well, this time 1 Peter chapter 3 helps us. It's a great passage and I'd encourage you to go away and read it as you reflect on what you've heard today. 1 Peter chapter 3, we're told very clearly that it's Christ who died. Jesus Christ who died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. That is, someone does get judged for my sin. It's Jesus. Christ dies, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So if you want to think about that a little bit, maybe ask this question, and I'll finish with this. Who's in the boat and who is not? What I mean is this. In Noah's story, who was in the boat? Noah, who was a righteous man, we're told. Noah, his family, the animals. Who's outside the boat? The unrighteous. But when you come through to the Lord Jesus, in the light of that verse in 1 Peter chapter 3, what do we, Christ died, the righteous one, for the unrighteous to bring you to God. That is, it's Jesus who dies outside the boat. The righteous one. So that we, the unrighteous, could be brought to God. See, that's the beauty of the Christian message about Jesus, isn't it? You don't have to be some super-duper righteous-in-yourself person to be saved. No! Christ, the righteous one, has died on the cross, outside the boat, for you, the unrighteous one, to bring you to God. Because that's how much he loves you. I hope you can join with us next week as we continue our walk through the book of Genesis. Thanks very much for being here today. I'm going to hand back. I'll just very quickly close in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your love and grace and thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus that we could never do for ourselves. Ourselves. Please help us this week not to look to one another um, but to look to you and just that we might know um, that there's nothing that we can do uh, that will save us but it's because of what Christ has done. Please be with us this week and help us um, to love those around us and to love you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.